Hey friends, it's time once again for a podcast. So in case you don't know it, this week uh, in Colorado Springs, Colorado, is the 2022 Community of Human and Organizational Learning Conference. Did I say that right? There was a lot going on there. I think I said it right, though. And um, so that's that's happening this week. And one of the benefits of doing a podcast for a really long time, all you newbies out there listen to this carefully, is that you've always got an archive to reach back to. And, in fact, I've been asked to reach back to an archive, so I'm going to because that's a, it's a really – Quite honestly, had I thought of it, I would have done this on my own, but I didn't think of it. Someone else did. So sit back and relax because what you're about to listen to is a conversation that probably happened in 2000, I'm guessing 2017, so it's it's almost five years old, and it's a conversation between some friends at this very meeting, and I've been asked to sort of bring it back. So sit back and relax. I think you'll like this uh, best of series on the pre-accident podcast. You ready? Do I need to turn on anything on? Yeah, make sure it's on because I'm really good at that. It says on. You're on, baby. It says off too, but it doesn't mean the thing's <laughs> in the right position. Um, we're jamming. Welcome to the Pre-Accident Podcast. I'm Todd Conklin, your host for today's joyride. Hope you're buckled up. Are you ready? So um, this podcast is going to be very special. I guess it is kind of very special. And uh, a lot of people are excited about this. And it is a very, very fun podcast. Today is a day where you will get to listen to Rob Fisher, Tony Mashara, Shane Bush, and myself sitting on a couch, um, not really four guys on a couch because that would be very close quarters. We'd be snuggling. There's no question. And all of us, I think, would feel okay snuggling with each other. I, of course, would be the lead of the snuggle, the snuggle pivot point, as it were. Tony would be riding the edges, and Rob and Shane would be somewhere in the middle if we were snuggling, but we're not. Really, there's only two people on a couch, two people on a chair, but we're sitting together talking, and I don't know... Honestly, you guys, if I've ever been together with those four guys at the same time before, or three guys, I'm often with myself. That's not that interesting. But uh, it, you just don't get to get those guys together very much. And so I asked them, since we were all together at uh, at the conference, if they wouldn't mind sitting down and talking. And I would have I collectively taken more people as well. Uh, I just kind of ran the limit of my technology so I had enough to talk to four people, and by golly, I got four people, counting me, three people plus me. I keep sort of including me as I'm as if I were. I promise you, I was there, but it's not about me. This is I. I try to not even talk very much in this thing, and so we started talking. And I thought if I could get him to go twenty minutes, you know, that'd be pretty good. Twenty five would be perfect. But they, man, once you start the blab switch on those guys, they blab, and I. I'm willing to bet you, you'll find this interesting. It's just because they they talked about it. They talked really. The time frame that they're going to talk about is is late '90s, early 2000s, kind of on. So they're going to go way back in history and and tell really some stories that I that some of them I never heard before. I do think this was a really special opportunity. It's, it's it, it. My guess is it won't happen again. It's just hard. 
it's hard to get everybody together and it's hard to get them in the mood where, where they want to reminisce like this, but the, they, they were there and it was midday. They were, you know, we, it, it, no one was uh, influenced by any external factors. Uh, we're just a bunch of friends sitting around talking. And I think you'll hear that. That is a great part of, of doing the podcast. It's, it's the reason I like to do these podcasts. It's the reason I think I continue to do them is because we get these, we get these opportunities to just sit and talk to each other. And it started out with just Rob and, and Tony and myself. And I was desperately texting Shane, trying to find him. And sure enough, he walks by about, well, almost the perfect timing. He, he walks by when Tony starts talking about going to the Idaho National Lab and doing the first human performance class outside of the nuke world. And it really was the, the first one outside of the nuke world at Idaho. And Shane just kind of drops right in and, and, and becomes a part of that conversation. I hope you enjoy this immensely because I do think this is a pretty special time together and it's fun and it's not too boring and you're going to learn a lot. So near as I can tell, that almost makes it worth it listening to. I mean, you know what I mean? Does, does, if, it, if it does those things, then I think we're, we're pretty much set up. And what else you got to do if you're sitting in your car or walking the dog or flying on a plane or whatever? I mean, you know, just sit back and relax and enjoy. In fact, here's what I want you to imagine. You're on the couch right there between Tony and I. So you're just, you're, just, you're an active member. You're sitting there relaxed, laughing and, and listening. That's you. You're, you're, you're the fifth part of this, uh, this little conversation. And we're super glad you're there. So without much more crap, because I could go on a long time just talking about stuff. Why don't we get into it and just kind of take it as it, as it runs? There's not really an agenda for this conversation. They're just talking and see what they say. And I'm glad to have you as a part of it. So without any further ado, this is Tony Mashara, Rob Fisher, Shane Bush, and Todd Conklin talking about the early days of understanding this new safety and human performance. Enjoy. So we talk, we talk about um, people standing on the shoulders and, and how we were more in the creative mode, Tony, of we, we by our very nature had to learn, practically apply, mm -hmm. do, learn, practically apply, do. There was a small number of us. Yeah. The question is, and, and so, on the one hand, there weren't a lot of shoulders to stand on as we were coming up. We Absolutely, were, we were we were uh, hanging the pitons and getting the crampons and you had Uncle Jim, the rope, right? You had you had we James did James, James, from a theoretical perspective. We right. had reason. We had De probably David Rasmussen Woods and Jensen, had to David Woods, Rasmussen for sure. Yeah, and was Honegel in the mix yet? No, not yet. No, not no. yet. Um, and Decker wouldn't have been in the mix. No, he's, not, he not yet. He's probably wouldn't even born. No, I'm kidding. Well, I'm was, kidding. He was born. <laughs> Barely. Yeah. <laughs> well, when I got excited, first, the first book I read was Human Air by James Reason. Me too. Right? And you know, like, it was a tough read. Sometimes I had to read paragraphs two or three times. But uh, the chapter seven, I always remember this, chapter seven, latent failures, that, that particular, you know, in, in his uh, his uh, – what was his uh, 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 analogy? Is was the latent pathogen analogy? Right. You know that just made so much sense. And then I read uh, uh, his uh, explanation of skill-based, rule-based knowledge. I said, I said to myself, this stuff makes sense. And if we can just boil it down to something that's usable in the workplace, 
this would be worthwhile. What motivated you? Because when you guys were doing this, well, first of all, what what made you think it was the right thing to do? And what motivated you to, to do it? So probably different perspectives. Yeah, I'm sure. Because he was, Tony is probably the best theoretical uh, understanding knowledge and the, the body of work that is related to human performance in the world. I agree. And, and, and has the ability to translate it, <laughs> has ability to translate it operationally. So I so was it's not just the body yeah. of knowledge, it's the ability to speak it out and make it. Well, that's what John Rethaw, I don't know if you know John Rethaw, he's a, he was a colleague or is a colleague of James Reason. He was a consultant and that he called me a translator. Yeah. So that, he called that me was, a translator. my role was to take the translation right. and interpret it for Operators, which is what I was doing. So at, at about the same time, this is probably 90, 91, 92 time frame, he was, Tony was um, getting excited about these things. And I was saying, yeah, but will they work with mm-hmm. operators, mechanics, electricians, right. and supervisors? So what made you, what made you, what motivated you to do it? I mean, first, I was motivated by the fact that if I didn't do this well, I had to go back on shift work. So full disclosure, <laughs> I hated shift work, and I was assigned to human performance, root cause, and procedures, and business processes. For who in the industry? Get out of, who in the, sorry to interrupt, but I got a million questions. Who in the industry first discovered human performance to even bring the idea in? Well, TMI, actually. Right. They, they were – oh. The wash report, wash fourteen hundred. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I don't know if that's the right word, right phrase, but uh, uh, the output of that of that accident said that human error was the primary cause. But of the accident, yeah. But South Texas Project was the first site to have their keys taken away for human performance. Hmm. I didn't know that. Really? Yes. So then it gets pretty real. I mean, and and that that's when they handed out the book Human Air and said, you, I mean, this guy's been working on it since three miles. And that's how I got put on the human performance improvement team that that forced me to say, if I don't want to be on shift work, I've got to get good at this. And, and but it so intrigued me that while Tony was saying this makes sense. I was saying, how do I make this make sense to everybody that needs it? Mm. So on the skill-based, rule-based, knowledge-based piece, which, as you know, has been a passion of mine, I had to take what was written about it and dissect it from the research and say, now what does an operator, mechanic, electrician, surprising need to know? At the time, you know that's right. Rasmussen and Reason did not like each other at all. I mean, correct. Like mortal. Yeah. Frenemies. I wouldn't say enemies, but frenemies, right. right? So that was an interesting part of it. What what did you start with? What, so you started with reason. Well, well, what happened is, uh, you know, I joined EMPO in 1985, and they had this program, which was an outgrowth of the TMI report, uh, Human Performance Enhancement System, HPES, right? It was, That's even a worse name. I think we've actually found a worse name. But it was it was, but it was the starting name. But that was the starting thing. It, and so it was fashioned after the uh, aviation safety reporting system. Right. Yep. And, and, it, and, and so I got involved with that, and it was more or less an investigation process. That was Bruce and John Groth and those guys, right? Yep, yep. And, uh, and Rick Lorette. Yep. Uh, uh, Joe Bishop. 
uh, that crew, uh, Mark Pfeiffer, you know, yep. who's, who's retired now. But anyway, <clears throat> and so in 1989, Empo decided, well, we passed, we transferred that technology onto the nuclear industry, HPES. So we stopped mm-hmm. doing HPES. And, 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 uh, uh, and then Zach Pate, the president of Empo, said, we need to understand uh, uh, what's the prevalent causes of events in the industry. And it turned out it was human performance, just the percentage. So the percentage of the causes, the triggers of, of, uh, of events transitioned from event or, uh, uh, equipment to human performance in 1990, 1991. And uh, he, he commissioned a special review committee of, uh, of various experts, Aubrey Daniel, Terrence Lee, and uh, a, a few others, and uh, I actually had the opportunity to work with that that uh, review committee, and that's where the recommendations came out. The industry needs to understand the systems perspective of human performance, because James Reason's book Human Error came out in '91, right. right? And so that was the state of the art in human performance when this special review committee. Yeah, for sure. Right. And so, so, so that that influenced the mindset of the committee. When did you guys put together sort of the first fundamental stuff? The when did, what? The, in fact, uh, <laughs> in, in, in fact, Rob was part of that pilot. You know, that role. First graduating class, <laughs> still on my wall. Really? <laughs> yes. <laughs> it, we, Heck yeah, uh, proud of that, man. Were they using the hockey player metaphors then too? Oh, yeah. sure. Yeah. Well, say I didn't the, understand the hockey. Yeah, I was going to say the, the hardest sell was selling hockey to us. You got a bunch of hicks from Hickville, yeah. <laughs> and we pretty much between the three of us are hicks from Hickville. I don't Iowa, want to throw yeah. any stones. Iowa, Alabama. Well, we're now we're high tech rednecks. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so with the excellence in uh, human performance uh, uh, booklet was an outgrowth of that committee, and then somebody said, "Well, we need to train the industry." <clears throat> And so that's when we developed the Human Performance Fundamentals course. And uh, Tom Reeder and myself yep. did a roadshow, uh, and uh, we did a number of pilots, and uh, we we were on the road for a couple of years. I mean, in, in those first classes, you had myself, John Owens, L.D. Holland, Karen Jennings, Karen Hammond now. We were all in the first classes that ever tried this. and And from those classes – Going back to Reason's work, I would say, yeah, that's great, but what really matters is that I get in knowledge-based performance mode. That means my error rate is 10 to 50%. How do I discover that, Mm. and then what do I do about it? That was a completely different conversation than skill-based, rule-based, knowledge-based exists. And, and, uh, and, and, And so I started working on what became known as triggers that would tell us we were there. So what are the triggers that tell us a trap exists? We developed all of those. What are the triggers that tell us we've slipped into knowledge-based performance mode? Because if you don't know what you don't know, which was a new phrase, that wasn't in the old books. It was how do we convey to people when they move into that piece? So we took these chunks and we just developed them, tried them, worked them, and then came back together with each other as HPRCT started and said, this, this worked, this did, this worked. Going, this well, I remember early on in H, it was traps, triggers, and what was the other Tools. Case? Tools. Tools. I remember the, the three first, T's. The first time I saw you 
really in action. I'd seen you before in the community, but the first time I saw you teach a class was at HPRCT. I think it was in Monterey. I don't know why. Did that, they do them in Monterey? Or yeah. Monterey? Yes, I did. That sounds did right. Oh, yeah. 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 It's, I don't know why th- that I remember it because it's Monterey. Yes. Yeah. You can't, like a glass of water in Monterey costs $35 <laughs> back then. But that was really, that was super early on the journey. And that was really interesting. Now, at that time, um, we were really aligned towards error management, right? right. I mean, if we thought a, a lot well, see, about error is something we could manage. The problem, and we had this discussion about the principles. Right. All right. And I worked with Dr. James Reason on those principles. I actually traveled to, to Manchester, England, sat down next to James Reason in his office, and we, we, we knocked out those principles. And by the way, not to interrupt, that's the way we tell the story that don't believe that we sat down and, and thought, well, what do we need to tell senior leaders? No, no, no. The guys that invented this said, these are the guiding principles right. that will change your paradigms. This isn't something Rob or, or somebody else just thought, well, tell them this and it'll be okay. Mm-hmm. Go ahead, yeah. Tony. Yeah. Sorry to interrupt. No, no. It's, uh, it's important that uh, we didn't make this stuff up. Exactly. We, we went to the researchers yeah, I, I, science and, and I, mean, you I was, get no better than the. I mean, that's a first reference you set by James Reason. That's, yeah, yeah. In fact, it, just as smell his breath. I have, I have to tell you this uh, little aside. In his office, we're sitting there, and he's got books everywhere, like any academic would. And uh, we took a break, and behind his desk, there's a window, and I was standing next to the window, looking out, you know, looking at the university, and there's a door, there's a window or another building, maybe twenty feet from his 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 window. And I'm looking over there, and James Reason, you know, he, he saddles up next to me, and he says, you see that window over there? I said, yeah. Well, that was Neil's Bo- Neil Bohr's office where the atom was discovered. Oh, my gosh, really? Yes. <laughs> so this, this is an anecdotal story, but I was with Patrick Hudson not long ago. Do you know who took over James Reason's office? He did. Patrick Hudson? No, no. Stephen Hawking. Oh, Stephen yeah, Hawking. Really? If, if you think about the infinity of knowledge that we've gained as a world. Uh, again, it was anecdotal. I'm pretty sure that's what, this is a pretty sure story. Yeah. But either way, they, that, that place has been so historical, so, historical, so certainly, instrumental. Well, certainly to the work we do because, because reason would have, but at that point, reason would have been just coming off of, well, Three Mile Island for sure. Mm-hmm. But before that, well, he would have was been in, the, the rail safety stuff with the British Rail, right? That, Correct. And uh, he was he was actually uh, developing his last uh, uh, manuscripts for managing the risk of organizational. So, accident. can I tell a story about that? I, I'm not a hoarder, but I've I've kept all you know, the. You know, when you start a sentence, I'm not a hoarder. It totally means you're a hoarder. Only if you use the word "but." Oh, okay, okay, never. <laughs> which I did. Yeah, I know you did. Uh, my wife owns 25% of our company and has for 25 years. And, and she really keeps us on track for understanding the business side of what we do. She was going through these boxes of books that were going through their eighth or ninth move when we just, you know, we just bought an office in Charlotte and have our center for excellence there. She pulls out, Jim came over and sat down at us at Enpo and handed out a, a document that says do not copy and on the top it says organizational accidents. And he says this is a working title and what I've given you here are the ideas for this book, Organizational Accidents. 
she found that copy outstanding sitting sitting in one of my old boxes mm-hmm. and and I just, I get chills thinking about the fact that we sat there having these discussions about the practical applications of what he was writing and it's all just an outline of what he was thinking about saying in what became managing the risks of organizational accidents. What were the hardest concepts for you guys to initially grasp? I mean, I ask that because, generally speaking, I probably went two years without teaching performance modes, just because I didn't feel like I didn't feel like I had a that, the handle on it to do it the kind yeah. of justice I need to do it. I'd. My reaction to that question is, uh, I was I was hanging on to what James Reason was writing at the time. I think at that time he was the only one that had uh, uh, any any uh, uh, publications out in, in the marketplace directly related directly to related to this, right? And, and I remember this is my reaction was this all makes too much sense. I, I really didn't struggle much of what he was saying. Uh, but I, it needed to be con- translated into what the, re- the nuclear industry could understand, what managers needed to understand. Now, this, you know, J- uh, Tom Reed or Tom and I were on that d- doing this roadshow, and this takes me up to 2001 when I went out to Idaho National Labs right. and, and introduced it to to you guys. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but uh, but uh, and, and still, we were still. It was still a little on the theoretical side. And we're still trying to translate it into something practical at that point. But uh, I, I made a mistake. I made a mistake in thinking that you could all we had to do was is educate management. Here are the concepts. Here are the principles. Now go forth and do good. And uh, I remember going to a nuclear plant in Illinois, and uh, and, and presenting. I did a half day session with the the senior management team and the engineering manager. He, he, I, when I concluded, he just said, "Now what? <laughs> what do you want me to do?" So that was the time that you guys were still doing that piece in nuclear, but I had left mm-hmm. and was—I had to do practical application because that was what was demanded outside of nuclear. Yeah. So but you went out so early. What? I, what caused did. you to go out? Um, Which again, I would suggest is kind of courageous. Oh. Well, Thanks. Looking back on it, I, I haven't told this story very often, but looking back on it, our my wife was pulled aside at church by some of the people that I worked with and said, "Don't let him do it. Yeah, He's not he very good at it. He uh, the the field isn't emerging, and you're gonna your family's gonna starve. Do not let him do this." And she looked back at him and said, "We're not letting him do it. We're all in this together. We're encouraging this." And if he wasn't good at it, he wouldn't be making two, three times on in part time outside of work. Rob, <laughs> what he you makes were good at, at it then. Yeah. Well, thank you, Tony. You were good at thank it you. then. I, well, so now, here's what of, I t- now I understand that with a with a supportive family why you were successful. Oh, I mean, that's got to be a part of your success. It, and it wasn't even. It's it's like I tell managers, we don't need you to support what's going on. It's going to fail if you support it. We need you to drive what's going on. You have to have some driving and leading behaviors. And if you don't do that, we're never going to get past the first senior leader session. So Because much, I'm not going to do that. How much has your class changed from that first class in 2001? Or are we in 2001, 2002? Yeah, yeah. yeah. 
I, um, well, I can tell you, just given context, you know, back in those days, the, the emphasis was on error prevention. Yeah. And error of, prevention tools. And tools. Yeah. You're right. And uh, the nuclear industry, you know, from my perspective, uh, they, to a certain extent, adulterated the approach to human performance. Originally, if you read the excellence document and then some of the other, you know, the, the human performance fundamentals uh, manual, uh, reference manual, it really put a focus on the organization. But managers in the industry took it and applied it just to the workers. Yeah, their interpretation. Yeah. So that was, here's what we want to do. We're going to cherry pick what's out there. And I had the obligation to not let the clients cherry pick. So to answer your question, on the fundamental side, it would be like saying, how much has... Um, how you tackle changed in football. And Not the reality much. is it hasn't changed much. It's changed until a little recently, bit. Until recently. Until recently. Until yeah. recently, which, which now, which is so great because now we're learning. So the whole traps, triggers, tools thing was the next level because now you couldn't do tools unless you understood traps and triggers. Right. And by the way, who sets the traps? Those are latent. Where did the latent things come from? The organization, I can make direct connections That's between those. That's important because remember, initially when we rolled programs out, we would roll tools class out without a problem. Exactly. So no concept on the trap. Right. No concept on the trigger. So we're basically teaching tools that have no applied use. Mm-hmm. They're conceptual yeah. tools. It's like giving somebody a star bit screwdriver and and a one day lesson on how to use yeah. it, and then sending them in a world where there are no star bit screws. Yeah. Right. Or there's some, but but they're pretty they're, rare. They're pretty rare. Yeah. And then and then as you grow that, we had to figure out. I had to figure out, and our company had to figure out what's the initiator on this whole trigger concept. Um, once you see one, now what do you do about it? So we so mm. the next step was. What do the traps look like? What do they feel like? What do they do with you? And then what do you do about them? So what do they look like and what do they feel like became the triggers to tell you yeah. that you might fall in the trap that made Which you makes vulnerable. Sense, right? I mean, yeah, yeah. Starts to, so all this to stuff made together. sense to me as a, as a worker. What do I need? And what that led to was now, okay, what do I need a supervisor to know if I need that? Right. What do I need a manager to know if I need that? And what does a senior leader need to know and do? If I need that. When did the Impo manual come out? 2006. Yeah. So that, this is later. Yeah. And did the manual come out and then the tools? Right. Yeah. Well, yeah, the, uh, the, uh, human performance tools for workers came out, uh, in 07, or no, I'm sorry, in 06. Did the manual and the, the human performance tools for workers came out in 06. But at that time, interestingly enough, we had been doing those things yeah. in mm-hmm. other industry. And and I had migrated a bit out of nuclear because you couldn't get them to listen to you unless it came from Impo. Right. Yeah. So you know we had we and were, we were pick, cherry picking as well. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> so we kind of went and piloted this. So I I took the let's protect the plant from the people concept mm-hmm. and turned it into a let's protect the people from the plant concept. Yeah. And realized nothing changes in humans, human performance, and leadership when you flop those two things. When did, or maybe why, but when did we become less interested in error? When did error become less interesting? Maybe that's a way to ask that question. 
Well, it was also in two thousand. It was also in two thousand six when uh, resilience engineering started to to surface. You know, two thousand three is when White and Sutcliffe's book, uh, Managing the Unexpected, came right. out, and so that influenced me. But any, any influence from Carlene Roberts and Todd Point? Yeah, guys? that was it, that was embedded in in uh, in White and Sutcliffe's book. Uh, it, I'll be honest with you; I really hadn't read much from from. Uh, Carlene or, or Todd Laporte yeah, yeah, at that point. So my first introdu- introduction to HRO was was managing the unexpected in '03. What did you think about that book? I loved it. Yeah, I loved it. Yeah, especially the uh, the ch- the five checklists. You know, here and you see a lot of that in your writing. Yeah, mm-hmm. a lot of that how to in your. But writing. see that that was an indicator that we needed to look more at the system. Yeah. Or at the organization, and that influenced the the, the uh, reference man. Here he comes. There he is. <laughs> Get in here. <laughs> hey, it's one have o'clock. Seat, Time for us to have our meeting. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say I didn't know it was. <laughs> it wasn't. We just were all here, and you weren't. It, it, and now that Shane's here, remember uh, we were talking about my trip to Idaho National Lab, and yeah, I was yeah, yeah, yeah. One. Well, that's where Shane was. Yeah, that's where I met Shane. And did Shane look young and innocent then? <laughs> oh no, that was twenty. I put about twenty, thirty pounds ago. <laughs> Live is the word you're looking for. You still look as good. In my mind, you're still as young and vibrant as you were the day I met you. Wow. He did say in his <laughs> no, mind. I do these podcasts. I, I'm lying. So, what was it like when Tony came out to Idaho? Oh man, it was very eye-opening. In fact, I can. So, how much prep, I, how much prep did you have before? It happened. Before he came out? Yeah. I wasn't even invited to the meeting. <laughs> and so, well, tell us no, more. Honestly, yeah, my boss, Bill Gay, is the one that invited him out, and it was for managers, and I wasn't a manager. But I read the Ampo manual because we'd been exposed to it prior and some slides, and so I just snuck in the back. But, yeah, I can remember. And there was a lot of snow on the ground. Tony and I have been – or, I mean, uh, well, we did talk about this mm-hmm. before um, – it was so eye-opening to me because I, I knew I wanted to go out and do some kind of consulting of some sort. just didn't know what the subject was going to be. So when I was first exposed to this, I immediately was drawn to it. So I started reading all the books, the Decker, or not Decker and Dan, but James Reason. Um, his first book was a little hard to understand. It wasn't nearly as easy <laughs> That's as That's a new the theme. Info. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, yeah. Re- I think you're being really kind right now. <laughs> But yeah, it was uh, it was just really the eye opener that got me started. His interest, uh, or the way he made it so interesting, as far as the it was just so different. What were Tony, what was Tony's that first class like? What was Tony's first class yeah. like? Well, it was so interesting because if you understand the um, culture we were under, it was 180 degrees different. Oh yeah, and so it wasn't like everybody was sitting there buying in. There was a lot of people that were very uncomfortable with the message. Oh yeah, and so. Um, that told me that there was really something to this. Yeah, that makes it more yeah. legit. Well, what was the early pushback like for you? What was it like for you, Rob, the early pushback? Out of <laughs> commerce, out in the marketplace, right? Yeah, or, or well, even, I mean, wherever you got there, you got it everywhere, sure. Sure, I mean, because we were the first planet that was put on notice and we had no choice but to do human performance, which had never really been done at that mm-hmm. point. It had, been, it had just been talked about from a theoretical perspective. Um, I, I had an interesting boss that gave me as much rope as I wanted 
with the belief that at some point I'd probably hang myself, but he wanted me to have as much rope as I could to do what we wanted. I mean, I remember slit vamo. Oh, slut vamo. Yeah. yeah. We tried this <laughs> thing that became star that was slut vamo. And so we thought, it was a self-checking yeah, tool. Yeah, it was a self-checking tool. I'm glad a, you guys changed that name. A seven-step seven self-checking tool. And <laughs> slut Vamo. But, but that we, sounds like you'd go to jail for saying that. It, it does sound like that. Their porno names, by the way. <laughs> yeah, no, but I only ask you their porno oh, name. Thank you. And, and there's and, another one and called so, Piscopo. Piscopo. That's yeah. So the initial pushback was managers saying, eh, why would I listen to an operator? They don't know what I do. Yeah. So I'll listen to an operator that is telling operators how they can reduce air. But I'm not going to listen to an operator in my own house that is telling me how to manage. And I'm certainly not going to listen to one that says, now we're going to shift the blame from the worker to the manager, which is what they heard even though no one was saying it. And I actually had a boss that told me this, and it it was genius to hear. He said, Rob, listen, we send you out all over the country, now all over the world, to gather and do and bring it back and do. But just remember this management team thinks they will never be less than two weeks smarter than you are. Whatever you bring us, two weeks later, you teach us. So I'm sorry. You're never more than two weeks smarter than we are. Yeah. Yeah. You got two weeks to tell them everything you learned every time. Exactly. And then instead of it being a, um, we we don't know everything you know, but we now know a lot. It's we know everything you know. In other words, you've taught us everything that you know. Now go out and learn more. So that piece of managers believing that – and this is why they embrace the tools so much because they weren't theirs. They belonged to the workers. Yeah, if yeah. workers, And this is why, especially in Nuke, they started blaming the tools right. as the barrier that failed as a root cause because yeah. that wasn't management. That they was were using the, the tools as a weapon. As a so, weapon, you, exactly. You saw now, because you were from Info, did you not get a lot? You probably got a lot. I got a lot, I got a lot of pushback. Did you really? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Because yeah. you came from Info. So when you walked well, in, angels would sing in a ray of light. No, no that's not true. That's not true. Oh, yeah. that's just my impression. We're from Info. We're here to help you. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> but at Info, it seemed that whenever we did our plan evaluation, we started back in in, in uh, ninety nine time frame. There was a revision of our performance objectives and criteria, and that's when human performance became part of the plant evaluation. And uh, and so a lot of the organizations started using the human performance tools just to show Impo that right. we're doing doing human performance, and that and that's where we got uh, the industry got in trouble. Uh, they would start uh, just tr- whenever Impo would show up, they would just do the tools without really knowing why they're doing the tools, just to show we're com- in compliance. They would actually teach showmanship yeah. of the tools before Impo got there. I mean, I, 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 I oh no, I can imagine. I, I was asked to come into the, yeah. yeah, I was asked to come into several plants to do Impo preps to show people. How to, how to show Enpo they were using the tools. Right. And, and two of those, after two of those, I figured out what I was so, really being used for and I stopped doing them. So the problem, Enpo was part of the problem in that, uh, it, 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 the adult, the you know, evaluation process basically forced the industry to focus on error prevention, just using tools. Right. Without understanding the systems perspective associated with human performance. So, so I hear you saying, and I think this is worthwhile that it's really the system's perspective 
that changed the way we looked at air. It's not the lack of value of air. So I remember when we did the podcast where we were talking about air. Mm-hmm. You know, I come from the school of thought that says air is so normal it's not even interesting. Mm-hmm. But now that I'm listening to you, maybe what I should say is I come to a from a school of thought where the systems are so powerful mm-hmm. that they make air less important. I've always. I'm still. A, I'm still an advocate, as you say. As saying, we got to avoid critical errors. Right. Yes. I don't yeah, care yeah. which errors you make. I just don't want you to make an error that's going to kill you. Right. That's the one I want to. And, avoid. and the difference between you and me, or between Rob and I, and Shane, I don't, I don't know where we are in this because we never talked about it. Yeah. Is that I would say an error that has significant consequence. Is not about the air. It's about the lack of tolerance in the system to actually have the air. Yes. Right. So what we have to do. From from the 30,000-foot perspective, that's absolutely true. What we have to do is draw the line for people between those two things. Right. And, and so the perspective, it's not that we don't share the perspective. It's that we have to look at the line between the two so, we can, so that we can take other people there. That shifting of the paradigm for their understanding, they can't make that. I'll give you an example of the of the error is less interesting when we were having that conversation. Um, error is truly less interesting unless you're sitting there trying to figure out how an error hurt, maimed, or killed someone in your organization, in which case I don't have a choice but to be interested in the error because I don't understand where you're coming from on error is less interesting yet. Until somebody draws that line for me. Yeah. So the systemic thing was the same thing. The reason, systems approach. So what I did was said, okay, well, what does a system look like that somebody operates in? And that's where that people, programs, processes, Mm -hmm. work environment, organization, equipment came from. I I took some of uh, Covey's stuff about control, influence, and concern and said nothing can be in the system that you're concerned about. I may be concerned about culture, but I've got no control or influence on it. On back all the way back to Rasmussen, this person on this task at this time, the system has to be about that in that moment. So the so we had to stop telling people it's just about systems and tell them here's a system you can tell people to look at that they can then have some influence over that they can see where those trap sugars tools come from, all of those elements. But it's interesting because initially in human performance, we were pretty we were pretty non pulsed by risk. Right. We didn't we didn't spend a lot of time at all talking about risk. Yeah. Yeah, but think think about that though. The, the, it was a, it was nuclear grade going in. And here's one of my one of, you asked about one of the challenges. Yes. One of the challenges was the nukes never understood that they had three redundant layers of protection between any significant problem and any action that people were taking. And they went out and told somebody in a manufacturing facility that had zero defense in depth that they should be doing the, thinking the same way. And it didn't sell well. So I got, Enter Shane Bush. Yeah, and I got to ask you a quick question because, uh, first of all, the experience you had, and I'd have never known that you had the pushback you did mm-hmm. until you told me because I always hail info in the commercial power plants is, <laughs> man, if you want to learn, right? But we purposely in DOE tried not to regulate this because what we have found is if you push it as a requirement, then you run into what Rob, what you mentioned, the fact that, okay, before they come, let's prep and make sure we're showing the right face. But as soon as you leave... Then we go back to business yep. as usual. So, so far, we've, we've actually had pretty good luck. Now, the cost to that is some facilities just don't do it. 
Yeah. Uh, but the, the good news is those that do it are doing it for the right reason. Yeah. It's very similar in the manufacturing world, though. There, we don't want it to be regulated. In fact, we don't even want it to be a program because right. program right. – but in Nuke, if it wasn't a program, nobody would do it. Right. And so you mm-hmm. had to force it. You, so we had to create something right. that was not programmatic. Right. But effective. So I want to ask this then because you mentioned this and, and I've always struggled. I've never had the avenue to ask you guys together. Uh, we talk about critical steps and there's a number of definitions, but I think we all get basically what a critical step is. We found that there are so many people that consciously decided, well, this human performance stuff's not for us because I really don't have a critical step where somebody's going to die. I yeah. don't have a critical. So they just, they would say stuff like that. It's not for me as an engineer. It's not for me. I, I don't kill people. So we created those three unwanted outcomes, injury, mission right. interruption, and damage. And that way there's not a single person that could argue this stuff isn't for us. Right. Because my errors might not kill someone, but they could yeah. sure interrupt the mission or they could sure cause damage if done incorrectly. So if it's all right, what's your thoughts on the fact that we – broke it down to those three things, which could be defined by critical steps, but not necessarily. Well, I'll, I'll be honest with you. That's, that's uh, been my sentiment as well. Um, I, when I started my own business back in 08, 07, 08, and then I, I had the opportunity to do some work with General Electric. And so we started doing some assessments of, of human performance, how they did business. Right. We went to uh, their GE Healthcare up in Chicago. And uh, they're, they were manufacturing the little uh, uh, iron pellets or se- uh, seeds that were coated with a uh, radioactive iodine for uh, 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 what's the oh, medical uh, prostate? Uh, prostate prostate cancer, cancer. Yeah. for prostate cancer, and uh, and and so it was all done by glove bags. And and GE originally asked me to come in and help help with uh, industrial safety, you know, fatalities and and uh, serious injuries. And so I knew that it was more than just personnel safety. I knew that human performance didn't matter uh, uh, where these uh, uh, principles and practices were applied. It was more than just safety. Yeah. It was really yeah. profitability, productivity, uh, quality. Uh, uh, it, yeah. it, it, it was across the board. But I didn't tell them that until it happened at, at, at the GE Healthcare. And the plant manager was part of the, my, the, the training that I had there. Yeah. And, and and when we went and did the observation of the of the process, he realized that this is more than just safety. Yeah. This is quality. This is production. This is profitability. It's it's environmental protection. Anywhere where human beings are involved, this this HPI or you know, well, human performance. And, and, and that's why I mention that is because my experience has been if I get an hour or more in front of senior management. It, it it becomes a business initiative. Yeah, it's Not a profit. Multiple, yeah. It's everything. It's a business. It's the way we're going to change the, and frame everything. So when and, we created that system, one of the elements of that was, and, and I shared this on, the, on day one, it doesn't matter where you're at, homework or play, I can use that system to help yeah, my absolutely. 14-year-old yeah. mow the yard better. But it doesn't matter what you're doing. Quality, safety, effectiveness, efficiency, productivity, doesn't matter what you're doing. And what that did was it opened up companies that we we don't care what door we come in. It used to be you came in the safety door a lot, but I would say it's 33% safety door now and and 66% other business need because the system is completely agnostic to what you're doing. 
Right. And when people accept that, that engineer is then devoided of that's not what I do. What you don't design something that could, and your three yeah. are very close to ours. It's, yeah. it's somebody might get hurt. Yeah. Something might get broken. Yeah. And somebody might not be satisfied. Yeah. And the reason yeah. the satisfaction element came in there, there's all kinds of ways that people are not, their needs aren't satisfied that that system and human performance, therefore, can fix. So even our move into service and retail is less about um, people getting hurt, maimed, and killed yeah. and more about the fact that they spend billions on not retaining people because their needs aren't right. met. Right. Yeah, in fact, uh, I landed on harm as an overall arching idea, but I defined harm as damage, yeah. loss, or injury. So it sounds very it, similar. Well, and, yeah. and, and that we independently came to this idea of, rather than it being just injury or death or uh, that Universally, it can apply to anything. So we all come up with our terms, our phrases to make sure that happens. But yeah, and that's been the most rewarding thing. I have yet to walk into a company that hasn't applied. I, hey, well, yeah, I mean exactly. And 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 look, my heart is still in fatal, fatality, serious life-altering injury yeah. prevention, preventing, uh, uh, eliminating preventable deaths, because I think we can really help with that. And, and like you say, Todd, it's not as much the error is the interesting part, but understanding and predicting the failure mechanism that gets us to this catastrophic outcome. I just care so much about people that well, I don't want the suffrage. Yeah. Right. But what's, what I've discovered over the last 12 years I've been doing this is that uh, managers are realizing that if you want to avoid serious harm, in the workplace, with your product or with your people, your environment, whatever, you got to look at the system. Exactly. You got to look at how yep. your organization works or doesn't work to support that operator or that technician or that craft who's turning the wrench uh, in a way that uh, if they do make a mistake, you fail safely. But getting there is the part that I find so interesting. You all got there, but you didn't get there together. You all sort of organically discovered this larger um, purpose, really this larger understanding of, of the process. I find that really interesting. Well, I think consciously or subconsciously we work together in that we heard each other's ideas. Mm -hmm. I, I, was a, I was a pretty good translator, I think, of, mm -hmm. of some of the things that Tony was saying, you know, managers need to, okay, but I've got to figure out how to tell them that in a way that will get them to shift their paradigm. Right. And, and there are certain groups of people that the – Tony's pragmatic theoretical uh, approach, it hits them, but then they'll ask that question, okay, how do we do that? Mm -hmm. We were always the, the how-to people. Well, we didn't really have <laughs> we didn't really have a community per se. No. I mean, we, how did well, we, how did we, we did. cut with each other? Well, no, well, I think we did. I mean, I don't well, know. Well, HBRCT had a little bit to do with that. Yeah, I would think so. Yeah. I mean, yeah. But, I'd come in and watch you two, or yeah. watch you guys present and say, oh, that's a good idea. But HBRCT, we kind of got in the do loop for a while where it was sort of the same things over and over yeah. again. And we all know we went through that. Yeah. But how were we um, – how were we reading, developing? Like, when did Decker slip into this story? 
that's back in the uh, uh, 06, that yeah. time frame, because that's when the resilience engineering book But he was coming out of Woods. Yeah. So he's coming out of, Ohio, sorry, the Ohio State. Well, he, he was one of the, he was, University. Yeah, he was one of the co authors with Woods. Behind, behind, behind the, Human the curtain book, right? Right. Yeah. Right. Which I liked. That, I think yeah, that's that a was, good book, I think. But then he, then that, I think it was about that same time he wrote his first book, uh, uh, The Field Guide so to Wind, Understanding. But that wasn't the original name. That's what's interesting about it. What that book? That book had a first name: "The Field Guide to Understanding Human Error." What was the I can't first name? Remember what it was? Are you talking about the red and black version, the skinny one? Yeah, that that did have a different name. It was yeah. the Field Guide to Oh, you're investigating right. Investigating, investigating. investigating. Yeah, exactly. you're right. I didn't see it because of the philosophy we're talking about. So we, so we sat around one day with the Field Guide to Invent yeah. whatever it was. Yeah, Sydney's going to kill us for not knowing this. But uh, <laughs> I, I knew Sydney. I was on the kill. Yeah. <laughs> And, and, and so, so, oh God, you're pandering to Decker. We were actually sitting around talking about that book, and then the next version came out. I said, "Well, that's a that's a better way well, to then, say." But this the next version sucked. The well, Field Guide to Understanding yeah, Human Error because it was about twice as thick. I didn't suck. Well, that's, and, that's, but and the, the, that red and black book was amazing. Now this could be I a did, bias. I did love it. Well, I had it as a prerequisite for every one of my I classes as a red. I still do. I, I, in fact, I agree, and, and I have to admit that. I still actually try to buy the original one just because I like the flow of it. Exactly. Uh, and so you can get it for now eight bucks rather than the thirty or forty. Well, in the, in the red and black one, the skinny one. Yeah. It was one hundred and twenty pages. That's where to I to the least, point. You should, me, write, you should write a small book. Well, that's where I. That's where I stole the idea from. Is I thought the book that had the most legs yeah. for me, but had the most legs for my people, was the little book. And right. the, the question you asked about when Sydney came along, I think that. When people realized that, when the nukes realized that his work on cockpit command con, command and control, and the way he portrayed that could be used for control room command and control, that really sparked the interest of the nuke side, and and that was allowed to develop. But by that time, we were using the original works. To get to people do what they do at the time they do it for reasons that make sense right. to them at that yeah. time. Yeah. Yeah. But, but to me what's so interesting, and I guess I'm just interested just because we're all together, is that for some reason somehow that first Decker book really filled in the blanks mm-hmm. from the reason stuff. It did. And, and translated it and it really – there's no reason that book should have been successful as it was, mm-hmm. but it was incredibly successful. I mean, incredibly. Successful. Well, and I think well, it's, it was written from a workplace perspective. Yeah. I thought. Which and which those of us that are out really there using had. it. Look, yeah. now, they, why would they believe this guy that came from nuclear that might be wanting to nuke them? Which I <laughs> I told him a long time ago. I'm not. But instead of believing me, if I can hand them a book independent of you, independent of mm-hmm. me, yeah. and say, look, read this. Yeah. Then let's talk about it. When I say the things that are in there, it's his things, not my thing. And then we can build on that paradigm shift. And here's what I love about what I'm hearing here is I've had many of people, and I'm sure you have, that have sat through the thing and come up and said, I want to do this. I, I want to do what you do for a living. I'll, yeah. I'll carry oh, yeah. your luggage. I'll do whatever, but I want to do what you do. And they'll ask, so how do I become Shane Bush? And I said, well, here's the problem. I'm a, I'm a little bit of uh, um, Todd Conklin. I'm a little bit of Tony Machera. I'm a little bit of Rob Fisher. I'm a little bit of a little bit country. Long before country was cool, by the way. Uh, but honestly, it's it, it is one of those things where you listen to each other. Just this conference alone, I stole a few things from 
uh, Todd, and as usual, I'll give him credit the first couple of times, but then it becomes mine. Yeah, right. yeah. But, but I don't claim, <laughs> honestly, I don't claim originality on any of this because I can't, I don't know who I actually heard some of this stuff from that I've formulated into quotes. And yeah. you now I can go back to a few James Reason quotes and stuff. And, and Todd, I've been around enough that I can quote him. But most of the time, it, it, it's not origination, but we've, we've uh, grown together, even though we're independent of one another. We've grown together as a, uh, I don't want to call it an industry, but certainly uh, as a movement. Well, mm-hmm. Thomas Kuhn, who's a famous theoretician for science, for the culture of science, uh, a good read, he calls, he calls the growth that scientists have individually but collectively becomes physics or whatever. You know how three different people can have the same concept. He calls that the invisible college. And hmm. to a great extent, what you guys are describing this afternoon, it's kind of the invisible college. It's We've sort of developed, we've co-developed with very little opportunities to really interface. I mean, we had them, but we're talking basically HPRCT, bumping into airports. And, you know, the HRO. Exactly. The HRO, the meetings, HRO meetings. We're bumping into each other in New York, New York, and Vegas. Yeah, in Vegas. <laughs> <laughs> just bizarrely <Oddly> enough. <laughs> to me, that I think is really a part of it. Decker asked me last week, and he was quite serious when he asked me, we're what? What are we doing? Where are the? Where's the generation behind us? What are we doing to foster and create the capacity for us? Because we're yeah. all at a point now in our career where we're 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 almost in our early forties. Um, <laughs> forty years doing. You must be talking average age. Right? There's somebody here. We're at a point now where the road's hard and. Yeah. Grandkids are fun, mm-hmm. way more fun than teaching a class. That's where I am. More fun than teaching a class. What What are we doing to to facilitate um, the, the the next group of experts? Well, here's here's where I am. I, I, I have to pers- I have to personally say that I take a lot of uh, uh, pleasure in knowing that I've had influence on a number of people. Who have decided to start their own businesses? You mean this. us, right? No, 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 no. No, no. We do. We mean the three of us. No, no, no. But it's. But I see a lot of people coming up. I don't mm-hmm. see a gap there. I don't. I don't see that. I see a, a several people working. Um, even though the the number of consultants, so to speak, or the number of people working in the marketplace is still less than the demand. Yeah, the demand is much greater. Smaller than I thought it would be. Yeah, and I didn't mean, and I, I certainly don't mean. This and this HPRCT, I know it's amazing. Oh, what thir- two thirds of the people yeah. in there are new newcomers. And I, and I don't mean to sound like um, the generation below us isn't good. I don't mean any of that. I, the question I think that Decker was getting to, but he didn't get to, is why aren't universities? Yeah, embracing oh, this yeah. program yeah, exactly. before, right? That, yeah, and I think I'm that's surprised it's not a it's not and, a major. And we're working with two right now. To try and incorporate the body of knowledge into the industrial safety education, right? Um, it, but we're also trying to figure out how to move it into STEM processes in high schools, because that natural selection process is leaving creative people out. That what we understand about what we do is important to those people's development. Well, mm-hmm. Is is what we do a non-engineering function, a non-technical function? It is to them. To but, us, but let's it's answer, natural. Let's answer for us. Are, are we well, technical? 
people? Or See, here's what's interesting is, uh, and, and, and I, uh, our course is accredited by the University of Idaho. When we first started it, we were in the Department of that's Philosophy. That's where the potato was invented. That's correct. exactly right. That's why we had a potato bar yeah, last no, night. That's right. But now we're in the Department of Engineering because it was proven that the process is repeatable, that, right. that you can take uh, independent of one another if you use the tools right and correctly and come to the same conclusions as far as the organizational influences right. as to why people do what they do, the substitution test, so to speak, right? Yeah. So I absolutely think it's a science. It's a it's a soft science, but it is no doubt a science. Well, but I think it's but empirical. It, I'm not yeah, sure it's a soft I, yeah, But if, I, you, if you look at the who where the uh, researchers are, it's mostly at an organizational level. Yeah. They're mostly organizational folks. Uh, uh, yeah, there's techno- technology involved, but it's it's at it's at the management of of the organization and how the yeah. systems work. Here's That's my risk. biggest problem. Just before, okay. just a, mo- a, a moment. My biggest challenge for managers: they don't know how organizations work. Exactly. They don't know how their organizations create success or failure. And by the way, that started in the beginning of the industrial age. Mm-hmm. Yes. Our management has not kept up. In fact, our technology has outrun our ability to manage it mm-hmm. in the traditional way. Correct. For years. And, yeah, and there's this gap there that you would think they would obviously see. Well, but it's Taylorism, right? It's classic Taylorism right. to separate the work from the thing. Yeah. Well, and, the, so. and then we're still uh, promoting people on their technical competence. Exactly. Instead, instead of their, their ability, ability to lead. Manage. And then yeah. we're not developing their ability so to lead. So is, is I totally human agree. performance... Is resilience maybe a better question? Is that a is that a non technical skill? Because I will tell you that the people that are most successful, the people we like, Reason is a great example, Rasmussen is a great example, Decker's a great example, Woods a great. So let's just go through Decker's pedigree, right? So uh, undergraduate and master's level is a European degree in psychology, PhD in engineering, right? right? Look at Rasmussen. Strong background in psychology, strong background in engineering. Woods, right? Yeah, but here, looking at all three of all of us, you know, we we got our our our, our starts in technology, in operations, or in maintenance. We came in and actually operated, right? And then we graduated. So at least I graduated to realize, well, if you want to perform. Event-free or more profitably or more productively, you got to look at your your system, your organization. Right. So I think we're the rare crossover that is that is a mix of both that has to be understood. And there's not a lot of people out there that are studying that part. Here's here's a real risk as I see it. We're now starting to shift so that some academics are taking over. Um, and saying if it's not coming through academics, it's not real. Yeah, and if we're not careful, the academics are going to take over, and those of us who are practitioners are going to be left behind because the the press on academics is better than the press on practical. And but we are the mix of psychology Mm -hmm. and physics, and if you match those two things together, the psychology of why humans do what we do as individuals and organizations and the physics that we're exposed to that create risk, that's human performance. And no, 
and, and so shifting it to engineering, yeah. we're constantly having to tell them there's a psychology. I know. Well, this is not, not a sweet in, fit. There isn't. But we are that sweet spot that where we go from here is someone capitalizing on understanding how we communicate that piece so both ends want to meet in the middle. You know well, what the model is? Behavioral economics. It, 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 it is. Well, this is why I decided to call what I do human and organizational right. performance. Right. I, I stopped saying human performance because that gave the context, connotation of that this is just a worker problem. Right. Right. So I added the ampersand symbol yeah. and the O, organization, because I want managers to realize you're part of this problem or, or, or this issue as well. And I think this is good. And, you know, Jay Allen has in, interviewed some of us. He, but he asked me a very interesting question and referred to all four of our names came up as forefathers. Now I don't consider myself a forefather. I'm writing. I'm, I'm a forebrother. But, but Todd, <laughs> you've mentioned this many times. All of us are writing on the backs of giants that created the, uh, or not created, but came up with the philosophy, and we've just taken it to fruition, right? right? But he says, how do we know that the original theorists, so to speak, whether it be the DOE side or the info, that it's not getting lost, that the message is not going to get diluted or adulterized. And I love, Rob, the fact that, that you're bringing up the point of uh, if we don't capture this, then the next generation of this could look totally different. And before long, you're right back to where you are. And we're risking that with people who get excited. They come to a Shane or Rob and Tony. They say, how do I do what you do? I want to do it. And they, and they approach it as a consulting opportunity Instead of understanding right. how we got where we got right. and yeah. what you had to go through. Which is kind of Decker's new book, not the promo his new book. Correct. But the foundation's book is really interesting because right. his fear is that if we don't understand how we got to where we got to, we're destined to repeat. Exactly. Yes. And that's the why we all climbed the Grand Teton. This is my analogy. We all climbed the Grand Teton. You've got scrapes on your knees. I've got scrapes on my elbows. We all climbed it. The new people want a helicopter to the top. <laughs> you know, and it's like you can't do that. There are some things if you don't experience firsthand and, and, well, and have both sides of the coin of knowing what it's like. And I wonder like. how much of that is developmental. I wonder how much you have to start by being fixated on air then fall out of love with air, fall in love with systems. So here, you know, what what we've seen over the years, and we've you know we've had a great opportunity. We had a good run, twenty five million. Oh, yeah. you, you know, you Still. know over over two hundred and fifty thousand students. Right, and and some of those people rise to the top not so they can, not so that they can be consultants, but because it changes their life, it does. And their organization in such drastic ways that I get chills when I talk about it. They're you not know. doing it. But they never take that out into the world because they don't either don't have the opportunity or that's not their life. So you have that piece of when we talk about standing on the shoulders of giants and then I don't consider it giants, but standing on someone's shoulders. And then some of us, I believe that we all four of us were willing to jump off those shoulders. Yep. The question well, is, is, in the new much, generation, who's going to be willing to jump off yeah, how much, when they want a helicopter to the top? How yep. much are you willing to – I mean, how much have you been willing to change? How much have you been willing to let go of things that you once thought were were sacred tenets of human performance that you now realize probably I, weren't? I mean, I can give an example, and, and that's Heinrich's Pyramid. You know, what, knew it wasn't a great example from the beginning – but how do you move people from this thing that they're taught for eight years in school 
to something that you know is a false representation of what's really going on. Right. So you draw the line, and as you're drawing the line, you're abandoning the concepts along the way. That was our conversation before. Yeah. I can't get up in front of people telling you, this is BS, it's not true, you should drop it. I have to say, here's the path you take to that new future. And think of it from their perspective. What you're asking them to do is get on a boat on an island and row to another island they can't see. I mean, that takes a lot of faith. Yeah. To, and so one thing I ran into very quickly, and Rob, to your point is, and it's, again, another quote. I can't remember who said it, but it's hard to get a person to believe something when their salary depends on them not believing that. Correct. So when you're trying to get them to do something that, even though they know in their gut it's right or what they're doing is wrong, um, that is hard to fight that battle. Can I, can I give you my least favorite phrase that I hear when I go out? Oh, I, I'm drinking the Kool-Aid. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm not Jim Jones. We're yeah. not Jim Jones. We don't want you to drink Kool-Aid. We want you to step up, be a leader, use some science-based evidence to move your organization to a place that people don't get hurt, maimed, and killed, equipment doesn't get damaged or broken, and everybody's satisfied. Yeah. I don't, Kool-Aid doesn't do that. <laughs> yeah. I, not even the best Kool-Aid. Not even the best Kool-Aid. <laughs> I, I think uh, my reaction to your question is, is there's a tendency to want to, to, to take the, the the science, the HRO, resilience engineering science and research, and try to apply it in an idealistic way without realizing most organizations are in a business. There's there's a and so I have to admit I've taken their concepts and perhaps oversimplified some of these ideas. You know, so that managers can understand it, right? All right. So, I, I, so that, I don't know if that's been y'all your, oh, your no, experience. No doubt. Yeah. You you have to use terms and phrases that bring it back to you know a, real life. Yeah. And then you can slowly build it back up again. If if I was to ten years ago in there and go in there and talk about failing safely and the capacity of resilience and all that, they weren't ready for it. No. But but the foundation is built to the point yeah. that we're ready to have those conversations. Well, that, and that's been the secret. My problem with HRO with high reliability, yeah, is we basically said become these five things. But it was the journey. If you look at highly reliable teams, they never think they're reliable. Because they're constantly questioning. Right. Right. They, they would never self-identify uh, well, them. I think that's, that's what killed healthcare. Well, healthcare is in trouble because they said become these five things. Yeah. I think, uh, and that's one of the things that I've, I've struggled with with managers. They want the criteria and say, we want to have a, pl- a, a management plan to get us to be in a, a, KPI a high reliability. KPI for HRO. Right. Well, it's not, I like the way that some of the researchers are changing it. It's now high reliability seeking yeah. or resilience seeking. Yeah. That's a better I mean, characterization. These teams that are really reliable and they're seeking. They're, they're seeking. They're, they're never arrived. Yeah, they, 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 they will, they're the last group to say they're reliable. So for us, I, I've had to step back. You talk about leaving our old paradigms and I've had to step back and say, if safety isn't an outcome, right? How is highly reliable organization an outcome? Yeah. So why aren't we focusing on what creates that outcome? As opposed to the outcome itself. So we keep right. labeling these things and, and people love the label. You know, mm-hmm. we're going to do the five things and we'll be a highly reliable organization. Instead, our path has been to develop capacity and resilience. Well, how do you develop capacity and resilience that is sustainable? 
those are the elements that create this condition that would be considered highly reliable without people wanting to do KPIs for HRO. Where are we at on the journey for, where are you at in, where do you stand on your capacity? Are you improving it or right. reducing it? Where do you stand on resilience? Are you good at it? Are you flexible or are you bad at it? That's why I like Eric Olnagel's uh, resilience analysis grid. You know, he taught, he calls uh, his uh, 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 cornerstones potentials. Yeah. Yeah. Four. They're potentials. You never arrive, but you're, you're, you're yeah. You know, anticipate, monitor, respond, yeah. and learn. You, how do you improve the potentials, the effectiveness of those, those uh, practices, yeah. if you will? What else do we miss, you guys? Thanks for your time. Oh, absolutely. We missed 40 minutes with Shane. <laughs> I can't. I, you, can, you can buy him books, but you can't make them read. A lot of people think they can just come up and take our picture. I just come in and just flip in there and swing in like he's a, doing a crime. I was trying to be, what, what's it called when you're, you're fashionably late? You know, I think fashionably late is what's called. To, yeah. <laughs> I think I, I'm pretty sure that sums it up. It takes a pretty dang good meaning. I don't know to get me from taking part, a nap. The late, the late you got. Anything in midterm? No, but I, no. I'll tell you the one thing that that is interesting though is, and Rob, you touched on it, the university part, and how do we? Uh, I, I have tried to work with ASSE for years and years and years, for example, with uh, uh, ASSE safety professionals yep. because it's all left-brain factual stuff. Yep. And yet I think it's been proven now that most of it, or at least a big chunk of it, is this right-brain, organizational, contextual, yes. all the stuff we yep. talk about. But, man, that is a heartache to break. They, I, they are so hell-bound. So to use your phrase, you can't swing a dead cat without hitting something out there related to leadership. Yeah. Just like people believe today that everything we know about human performance is on the Internet, so they don't need to talk to yeah. experts about human performance or the journey, all they need to do is Google it, right? And they'll get the DOE handbook, yeah, and they'll yeah. be able to do it, which doesn't yeah. contain a lot of hows. No, it doesn't. And and I've been guilty of that because I tell them it's out there, but how the, the hows is the most important part. It is of it. the knowledge it is. you can gain anywhere, but and 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 they forget their why. Yeah. Well, so I if think, the last thing we cover is don't forget the why. I think the pressure to do greatly outweighs the pressure to learn. So they they'd rather have like something to go and do yeah. than to actually spend the time and try to gut through reason or yeah or read Decker's second version. Well, that's version. that's why I emphasize with my clients uh, business case. Yeah, you have to understand the business case and personnel safety is part of the business case. Yeah, profitability, all that's got to factor in into uh, management decisions, executive decisions to apply these concepts. Yeah, when some people say to me, well, they're just doing it for the money, it's like, well, okay, but how are you getting your paycheck? Yeah, I mean, let me say this. There's one thing. (laughs) I'll say this. There's no organization that's ever been formed for the purpose of being safe. Every organization has a business purpose, whether it's nonprofit, profit, they have a business mission. And if we don't understand that... We, they're the ones that suffer, not us, if we don't get that. We have to come at them from their paradigm and exactly. shift it, not from what we know. And, and I mean, I, I think that between the four of us, we're pretty good at that piece. 
which is why we're pretty good at what we do. I think what we're going to lose is people that understand what that is if we're not careful and people don't come, yeah. aren't developed in that. Right. And I think a lot of that is on us. So what does that mean, though? I mean, because I, I, I think it would be sad to take all the experience, and it's not just us four, but we're here right now, and not somehow capture that in a, in in some form that can be passed on. And it's a, it's a two-edged sword, right? Yeah. Do you try and develop people that are just going to develop for their needs? Or do you or do you find the people that step up and say, "I'll carry your bags, I'll do whatever," and weed them out through the mm. process? Well, of, right, right. And I, you know, in our organization, I, I never, I, I've shared this with you. I never thought we would have this cadre of consultants that do it because they have a passion for the outcome of yeah. the of the client mm-hmm. because they all lived it. All of our consultants have lived it as deployers right. multiple times before they ever came to us and said, you know, I'd really like to do this with a lot of other people. I've done it with two or three companies, and and I love what I do. I just don't want to be pooked at a, at, at a single company doing it. Um, but I think that that developing those folks into that next generation, or we, in our company we call them standard bearers. Mm. How do you develop standard bears that will be out there? Internal that, champions. And yeah. willing to be on a little bit of the bleeding edge like we've been. Yeah. You think that's enough? That's enough for me. That's I enough. feel like that's enough. <laughs> it's more than enough. Thank you. Thank, thank, thank you for you. the Thank you, John. So I think it was, it was about at this point that uh, everybody was having a little fluid balance issues. I think people just needed to get up and walk around. It went way longer than I thought it did. Uh, or I thought it would. It, I knew it went that long because I was there. But I thought it was worth, I, I didn't even cut anything out. I thought it was worth just playing for you guys. Just so you could have a record of what that conversation was like. I'd like to do this again and invite even more people and sort of collectively get the get the story of, of where things are. I, I don't know if that's interesting or not to you guys. It It's interesting to me just because I sort of remember the struggles we went through and how 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 different human performance and new safety was in the olden days as opposed to how it is now. I, and it's flatly better now. There's, there's, uh, there's just no argument. It's, it's, it's really morphed in a direction that's much, much more productive and uh, much more effective. And, and, and I think part of the journey we were initially on uh, was vital to getting it to move in that direction and including new people, new thinkers. That's been really vital. And that's where you come in. That's that's the part you play. Is you're writing the next chapters of this right now, in whatever you do, whatever your profession is, that is worthwhile. Just think about it, because all the stuff you're doing now, you'll talk about it years from now, maybe on a podcast. I bet it's not my podcast. God, if it is, kick me, will you? Please just kick me. All right, that's today. Plenty time. We got we're we're an hour and fourteen minutes into this thing. That's plenty. If you if you gutted it out to the end, I'm proud of you. I really am. Extra points for you. Until then, um, learn something new every single day. I, I know you did today. Have as much fun as you possibly could. That was really fun, spending time with three friends. Thank you guys for doing that again. And until then, be safe. <laughs>